We are going to begin this morning uh, with uh, our next sermon in our uh, Life of David sermon series. Uh, so this morning we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 15. And so I'll give you just a minute to turn there. 2 Samuel uh, chapter 15. If you're having trouble finding 2 Samuel, it's right after 1 Samuel. Um, and if you don't have uh, your Bible or um, the app, Bible app on your phone um, with you this morning, then we'll have the words right up on the screen. And so you can follow along there uh, if you want to do that. So that's 2 Samuel chapter 15. And we're going to start in verse 1, chapter 15. It says this, After this, Absalom got himself a chariot, horses, and 50 men to run before him. He would get up early and stand beside the road leading to the city, city gate. Whenever anyone had a grievance to bring before the king for settlement, Absalom called out to him and asked, What city are you from? If he replied, Your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel, Absalom said to him, Look, your claims are good and right, but the king does not have anyone to listen to you. He added, if only someone would appoint me judge in the land, then anyone who had a grievance or dispute could come to me, and I would make sure he received justice. When a person approached to pay homage to him, Absalom reached out his hand, took hold of him, and kissed him. Absalom did this to all the Israelites who came to the king for a settlement. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. When four years had passed, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go to Hebron to fulfill a vow I made to the Lord. For your servant made a vow when I lived in Geshur of Aram, saying, If the Lord really brings me back to Jerusalem, I will worship him in Hebron. Go in peace, the king said to him. So he went to Hebron. Then Absalom sent agents throughout the tribes of Israel with this message. When you hear the sound of the ram's horn, you are to say, Absalom has become king in Hebron. Two hundred men from Jerusalem went with Absalom. They had been invited and were going innocently, for they did not know the whole situation. While he was offering the sacrifices, Absalom sent for David's advisor, Ahithophel the Gilanite, from his city of Gilo. So the conspiracy grew strong, and the people supporting Absalom continued to increase. Then an informer came to David and reported, The hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. David said to all the servants with him in Jerusalem, Get up. We have to flee, or we will not escape from Absalom. Leave quickly, or he will overtake us quickly. Heap disaster on us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword. So as we continue in this series looking at the life of David, we're in this part where we see the fallout from David's sin with Bathsheba. You might remember the famous story of, in, in David's life where he takes Bathsheba, another man's wife, and he, uh, he has an affair with her. She becomes pregnant, and so to try to cover it, he has uh, her husband Uriah uh, sent to the front lines in battle where he would surely be killed, and then he takes her as his own wife, to cover it all up. After this, Nathan the prophet <clears throat> comes to David and pronounces God's judgment on him for his sin. Now, he also provides him with a path to redemption because uh, David repents. He experiences the 
consequences of losing their son that Bathsheba had born. Uh, but he repents, so he is not going to die for his sin. But Nathan still tells him there will be fallout from this. There will be consequences because sin is devastating. Sin is devastating, and it is destructive, and it has, uh, it has ripples that go out from just the individual act of the sin to bring damage, destruction, breakdown into uh, relationships and into um, the social setting around it. And so as we continue in this part of David's life after, this, uh, after his sin with Bathsheba and being confronted by Nathan, we continue to see how God's word is being fulfilled to him uh, in con- concerning his judgment for his sin. Because whenever God told him, uh, you know, you have done this wrong, he says to him, the sword will not leave your house. In other words, he is warning him. He says, because you have chosen to murder Uriah with the sword, the sword will not leave your house. And so what he is telling him is that there's going to be conflict in his household from here on out. Up until that point, David had been reigning uh, righteously over a good, united, peaceful kingdom. But after that point, whenever we see the fallout from his sin, there's now, um, there's now disunity, there's breakdown, and there's even rebellion in David's household. And that's what we're looking at this morning with Absalom. One of David's sons, who was the brother of Tamar that we learned about a few weeks back, uh, who initiates this rebellion against his own father. And we're going to see this story play out over the next few chapters as David and his own son wrestle for control of the kingdom. <coughs> so we continue to learn about the devastation of sin, but we also learn about more. So as we look at this chapter today and this story, and we continue to see the fallout from what David had done, we're also going to learn other things. We're going to learn about uh, just two things today. We're going to learn about rebellion and learn about faithfulness. So we're going to learn about rebellion and about faithfulness this morning. So whenever we learn about rebellion, the obvious character leading the rebellion in this story is Absalom. Like I said, one of David's son. He's he's a mighty man. He's a handsome man, as it told us in the chapter before this. It said that he was exceedingly handsome. That he had uh, it said that he had a great head, head of hair and he had a great family. Uh, and that, you know, he's just the kind of guy that people were attracted to, were drawn to. Uh, moreover, he is very intelligent. He is very clever, as we see through him scheming. In all of these different times, we saw him scheming to get revenge for his sister Tamar a few chapters before, scheming to work his way back into David's good graces. And then once again in this chapter, we see him hatching a, a, a clever strategy. So he is this, uh, this charismatic, attractive figure, um, but he is also very smart, and he proves himself to be quite the politician, if you read closely. He's doing what all great politicians do, even until this day. You know, one of the first things he does is he starts to smooth out and build up his image. You know, he, it says that he got chariots and all these people. He built an entourage around himself that he would travel with so that the people would see and be very impressed by him. You know, typically, the only guy in the kingdom who would travel around with such an entourage of chariots and men and soldiers uh, and, and advisors and so on would be the king. Usually it would just be the king who would, do, who would do that. Not even the king's sons. They didn't need all that. They weren't the king yet. But Absalom, in order to start building up his image as, as a kingly figure in the, uh, in the minds and hearts of the people... 
gets for himself chariots and soldiers and wise men and friends, and he builds up this entourage. He starts, uh, he starts refining out his image, and he knows how to work a crowd. You notice how it said whenever people would come up to him to pay him homage because of this image he had built up and what he was doing, you know, he was starting to uh, manipulate the minds of the people. So they would come up to pay him homage as they would the king. It says that he would instead take them and kiss them. You know, like, once again, what a good politician, working the crowd, kissing babies, you know, uh, he's got his hair slicked back, whatever else. Uh, so he, he's building up his image, he's working the crowd. More than this, he never met someone that he disagreed with. You know, you notice it said that he would, uh, the people would come before him, and first he would find out if they were from a, a, a voting jurisdiction, someone that was in his constituency. And so he'd say, what tribe are you from? And if they were from Israel, then he would say, whatever it was, he would say, your claim is just and right. You know, he would say, absolutely, I agree with you. He never met someone that he did not agree with their cause. And then, like a good politician, he complained about the system. And he said, you know what's wrong? There's no one to hear your case. There's no judge. And the most effective piece, he placed himself at the center of the solution. He said, if only I were a judge. Mm. You know, if only I had the power, I could fix this for you. You know, vote Absalom. <laughs> he would end with and hand him a sticker. You know, so he, he, he's this uh, smart, uh, intelligent, uh, a, a, a clever attractive, charismatic figure, and he is starting to uh, build up his image, and he's doing all these things. And what the narrator tells us is it says, and he stole the hearts of the people. Now, we need to understand what this means. It doesn't mean that he won their affections in the way that, that maybe a good politician through campaigning, through you know, speech-making and so on, could win the affections and the loyalty of, of people by persuading them. Uh, instead, what he's talking about here, it, it's not saying that he won their affections and loyalty. Because in the Jewish imagination, whenever you talked about the heart, you were talking about more than what we mean. You know, we, uh, living in the post-Enlightenment era, we, we draw a sharp contrast between the head, which we see as the seat of the intellect, and the heart, which is the seat of the emotions and affections. But in the Hebrew imagination, they didn't do that. They only referred to the heart. The heart was the seat of the intellect. And then along with that, also the seat of one's emotions, affections, and so on. They saw the heart as, as all these things. They didn't divide the human between intellect, emotions, and so on. And so what commentators tell us and scholars of, of Hebrew tell us is that whenever it says that Absalom stole the hearts of the people, it doesn't necessarily mean like a winning of their affections. What, what it moreover means is that he duped them. He deceived the people through his manipulating, through his campaigning, and through the words that he was saying into going along with him on something that they really didn't understand. You can see this whenever he went to Hebron. So it, it's interesting how what he chooses to do to launch his, um, his rebellion is he goes to the place where his father was first made king. If you remember, I know this was a while back, but if you remember... Uh, previously, whenever Saul, uh, it was after Saul's death, but there are still people who were loyal to Saul, who were in the capital of Israel. David went to Hebron and was anointed as king there in Hebron. And that's where Absalom decides to go to call himself king, to formally launch his rebellion. Okay? So he goes down there, and it says that he brought along 200 men with him. 
And the narrator tells us that they went along innocently because even they didn't understand what was going on. It says they didn't know the full situation, the full picture of what was happening. Once again, stole the hearts means he deceived the people into following him along with his rebellion. But what was Absalom doing? He was rebelling against the Lord's anointed one. David was God's anointed king. He was God's chosen one to lead the nation. He was the one who, through the prophet Samuel, sent to Jesse's house to anoint to be the leader, to, be, uh, to establish the kingdom that would never end, because through his kingdom, he would send his Messiah. Whenever Absalom rebels against the Lord's anointed one, what he is doing, not just rebelling against the Lord's anointed, he is rebelling against the Lord. He's rebelling against the Lord himself as well. If you remember, whenever David was not yet king, and he was running through the wilderness for his life because the tyrant Saul was chasing him down, wanting to take him, because he knew that David was a threat to his own throne. And so he is chasing him through the wilderness. David is running for his life. And there are two different points where David had the chance to take Saul's life and to finally seize the throne for himself. One was whenever he was hiding in a cave, and Saul came into the cave, you remember? There was another time whenever he was able to sneak into Saul's camp and go right up to Saul's tent while he slept. But neither time he took the throne for himself. Why not? It was his. He knew, the people knew, Saul knew that the throne was his, that that the Lord had removed his hand from Saul's kingdom and was placing it on David's future kingdom. Two opportunities, David had the chance to take the throne for himself. It was rightfully his, and yet he didn't. Why not? Do you remember? Because he recognized this. To take the throne, he would have had to put his hand against the Lord's anointed one. Because Saul, even though God had passed from his kingdom, he at one point was the Lord's anointed. And so he recognized, if my hand strikes the Lord's, Lord's anointed, It would be a rebellion against the Lord who had anointed him. It would be a rebellion against God. He knew that the throne would not be rightly his, legitimately his, given to him by God until it had been given to him by God and not taken for himself. That's why he didn't do it. So look at what Absalom is doing. Wherever he goes down to Hebron and he declares himself as king, an open rebellion against his father, the Lord's anointed was rebellion against God. So here's the first thing we learn. Sin is rebellion against God. Simple enough. Sin is rebellion against God. Now let's just consider what that means. Okay, so two sub-points on what sin as rebellion means. First of all, the action of rebellion. So sin is rebellion against God, but rebellion has an action point to it. What, it, what that means is, is that action is to turn away from God. It is to turn away from God. Rebellion is defying God. It is defying his will, and it is defying the obligations that he has put on us for instead choosing our own way. So whenever we sin, it is not as though we are just breaking a cold law that has no relational implications. We might think of it that way because we've been taught the Ten Commandments. They're laws, and so we think to ourselves, you know, if I sin, if I tell a lie, well, I'm just, I'm just breaking a rule, and that's all it really is. No, no, yes, there are laws that we can break, but there's more to it than that. Because if we break a law, we are also breaking the heart of the lawgiver, right? 
Well, if we turn away from what God says, this is what I want for you, we're not just bending or breaking some of his rules, but we are turning away from him. It is similar to whenever you're a child and, and, and you disobeyed your parents. Or if you're a parent now and you have children, you understand that whatever you tell them, uh, this is what I want you to do. Whether it is uh, sitting still while we eat at the table, something that is incredibly difficult for children. <laughs> I want you to sit and eat your food. Or I want you to clean your room. Or I want you to do this with me. Or I want you to not do that. You tell your children this, and they very frequently rebel against it, choosing their own way. And now, if you're a parent, you know this, and if you guys aren't parents yet, you'll learn this one day, that whenever they do this, it's incredibly difficult to not take it personal, especially whenever they do it for the third and the fourth and the fifth time. This is usually whenever our, our anger swells up, and we, we lash out on them in a way that we shouldn't. It's not justified, okay? Because after a while, we start to feel like, you know, it's not that you just don't want to clean your room. You don't want to listen to me. Yeah, have you forgotten all that I've done for you? Have you forgotten that I took you out for ice cream just a little while ago, and now you won't return the favor by obeying me? It's hard to not start taking it personally after a little while because it's not just that they're breaking their rules. They're, they're snubbing us in our, our authority, and they are showing their ingratitude for our love and for how we have blessed them. Now, as a side note, parents, you got to fight that. Don't take it personally. Don't take their sin personally. Okay, you got to fight that. But as an analogy, this is what we are doing whenever we rebel against God and his will for our life, the obligations that he has put before us. We are rebelling against his authority, saying, uh, I don't like your way so much. I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to stand up at the, at the dinner table instead of sitting and eating my food. Right? We, we rebel against him. What happens more than that is that whenever we rebel against God, it has social implications around us as well. Very often our sin is expressed not as just a purely, you know, isolated action where it only affects us and God. It, sin always does that, but it usually has effects towards others as well. Even if we think that it's something private, it's breaking our relationships, but very often our sin is uh, expressly, uh, explicitly directed towards others. Whether we hurt others with our words or through deceit or whether we hurt others in some other manner or form. Because whenever we turn away from God, we're also turning away from the obligations that he has placed upon us and how we are to treat those around us. You see, sin and rebellion is a, a turning away from, from a life which is centered in, or, or a life which is oriented towards God and others towards self. The, uh, one of the fathers of the church, St. Augustine, wrote that sin as rebellion involves turning away from the universal, <clears throat> the universal whole to the individual part. Meaning our life is intended to be oriented towards God, to delight in obeying his authority, to joyfully obey him and, and, and follow after him. And whenever we do so, it will then... Uh, have us treat others around us as we are supposed to, developing healthy, flourishing, joyful relationships, treating our spouse, our siblings, our, our children, and uh, our, our coworkers, all those around us as we ought to because we are ultimately obeying God. And so that translates into how we treat others in our life. And so our life is oriented towards the whole, as Augustine puts us, 
But sin will have us continually turn inward and inward and inward, where more and more our life revolves around and is oriented on our own desires rather than God's will. And so our own good and our own flourishing rather than the good and the flourishing of those around us. So sin is, an, <clears throat> is turning away from God. That's the action of sin. But secondly, there's the method of rebellion. The method of rebellion is to take what God gives us and to turn it against him. When we sin against God, it is not just uh, turning away, but it is very often involves using what he has given us to rebel against him. Look at Absalom. One of the beautiful things about Scripture is that it teaches us all these lessons, not just through explicit explanations, but through story. And this story is showing us what rebellion is with the example of Absalom. Look at how Absalom uses his father's kingdom, all the resources that he had available to him as a son of the king, as an heir to the throne, right? He uses all these things, his power, his resources, his opportunity, as the tools to rebel against his father, the king. You see that? And we so often do the same. Whenever we rebel against God, what we so often do is is we take our God-given resources, our God-given power that that he's given us, uh, our our God-given opportunities, and we use those as the tools of our rebellion against him. Rebellion is taking our God-given tools, powers, and opportunities and using it for ourselves. There's a great temptation for believers, especially, to abuse the God-given power that he has that he has given you and the blessings that he has given you as means to pursue God-given goals. Here's what I mean by that. There's a goal, a destination that God has put before you in your life, a mission, a calling, we might even say, a vocation, a ministry that God has put before you that you know he has called you to, and so you go down that pathway. But you know what? You encounter difficulty. You encounter obstacles. You find that even whenever you follow God's calling, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be smooth sailing or, or, or uh, easy driving. No, in fact, there might be difficulties, and it might be threatened. And so you feel this anxiety of knowing, you know, I'm following after this calling, but oh, look at all this difficulty I'm going through. I'm not sure if it's going to work out. I'm afraid that I might fail or that it might take too long. The opportunity might pass me up. And so what we're then tempted to do is to not trust it into God's hands, but instead to take our God-given power, whatever that might be. For some of you, it's resources. For some of you, it's relationships or opportunities. But to take our God-given power and to abuse them and to manipulate it and to justify that manipulation because, after all, we're following after that calling. The method of rebellion is to take what God gives us and to turn it against him, or to, instead of relying on the love of God and his care in our lives, to rely on our own control. So just let me ask you, where is there rebellion in your life? Where is there some rebellion in your life? Let's look at David. Lately, we've been looking at 
a lot of David's flaws. We've been looking at how David fell, and we've seen how he uh, has fallen in his sin with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah. But David is restored, and the rest of his life is not just failure after failure after failure. And in this story, we do see David as a picture of faithfulness. In this story, we do see David in a good light. In this story, he is a picture of faithfulness, because what he shows us is this. This is our second big point today. He shows us that faithfulness is persistent trust in God. Faithfulness is persistent trust in God. Eli didn't read the whole chapter for you today, just for time's sake, but I encourage you guys, as you go home later today, if they're out this week, to read this chapter in its entirety so that you can see what I'm going to be explaining as we go along, but you can see it and meditate on it. Maybe, you know, download my notes uh, and, and reread the chapter with the notes so you can... Um, remind yourself of what we learn. But David continues to trust in God through the highs and the lows of life. We saw this very clearly earlier in his life, wherever he was going through all the, the difficulty and the struggle that he had to go through, the wilderness, in order to achieve the throne that God had promised to him. How in spite of it all, you know, whether he was slaying the giant Goliath or whether he was hiding in a cave, he was trusting in God. And now later in his life, we see how whether David is sitting securely on his throne or whether his throne is being taken away from him by his own rebellious son, he is trusting in God. Because they, as they flee the city, they go and, and uh, in his actions and in his words, David is expressing to them his trust, that he knows that he is, uh, he is leaving us all in God's hands. Faith that is only devoted to God in the good times or in the easy times is not faithfulness. So often, I think for many of us, and there's actually a couple of different ways this can work, but for many of us, we have an intermittent faith. We don't have faithfulness that is steady, that is persistent, that is continued, but instead we have an intermittent faith. For some of us, it is an easy trust in the good times. Whenever all is going well, and whenever we feel as though our life is moving along the track and the, and the direction that we want it to go and, uh, and, and we feel God's blessing on our life, then those times uh, is great to worship. And it's easy to pray and it's easy to trust in God and say, oh, yeah, he's all got it in his hands. But then whenever things go bad, <laughs> whenever the storm clouds come over and the road gets, gets foggy and you're not sure which way to go, well, then that faith starts to crumble and starts to be shaken. For some of us, it's the opposite. For some of us, whenever we go through the good times and the easy times, our prayer life starts to wane off. Our Bible reading isn't as prolonged and it's not as intense. Our worship is maybe still present, but not quite as heartfelt because we feel as though life is good, I'm in control. But then whenever things get difficult, all of a sudden our prayer life picks back up. All of a sudden we're having to trust in God again. He delivers us, and then we, we slowly fade back into that life of ease and of not so much trust in him. You know, I think we might all fall in one of those categories, and maybe at different times in your life you've been, you know, one, one or the other. But it's so easy for us to live with an intermittent faith that only worships God's, whether, whether it's in the high, whenever things are good, or it's in the low, whenever we really feel our need for him, instead of living our life with a persistent faithfulness that is trusting in him throughout the highs and the lows, so that whether our life looks like this, 
our faith always looks like this, right? But in David, we see that he continues to trust in God through the victories and the defeats, whenever his throne is secured and whenever his throne is threatened. And we can see through the story how God encourages David's faith from a couple of unlikely sources. So as David is fleeing the city, because so that's where we stopped when he said we have to get out of the city because Absalom will come and take us all by the sword if we don't leave now. So as David is leaving the city, there's a couple of points where God encourages his faith. And, you know, if you're not looking for it, and if you don't have the eyes of faith, of faithfulness, then you might miss it. But the first moment comes in verse 19. They're leaving the city, and David turns to this guy named Ittai. Ittai was a Philistine. It says he was from, he was from Gath. If you remember way back in David's life, he had developed some alliances and partnerships with the city of Gath. And so some of those alliances and allegiances still exist to this day, where he is, um, not to this day, but to, to, uh, to this chapter. Because there is this Philistine man named Ittai from Gath, who is in David's, um, you know, David had his larger army, but then he also had his own standing army of elite bodyguards, all right? You know, these were the Navy SEALs, the Secret Service, who are always on him, who are always with him. And many of these men, we find out as he is leaving the city, are, are not Israelites, they're actually foreigners who were, uh, who were loyal to David. And among them is this man named Ittai of Gath. The king says to him, why are you going with us? Go back and stay with the new king, since you're both a foreigner and exile from your homeland. Besides, you only arrived yesterday. Should I make you wander around with us today while I go wherever I can? Go back and take your brothers with you. May the Lord show you kindness and faithfulness. He's saying to him, you just got here. You're not even from here. You know, I'm not even really your king. Go follow the new king. Don't waste your life with me. He's trying to give him some mercy and a way out. But in response, it says, Ittai vowed to the king, as the Lord lives and as my Lord the king lives, wherever my Lord the king is, whether it means life or death, your servant will be there. March on, David replied. In the midst of um, disloyalty from his own son, here we see God provide him with Ittai, who's not even from his own household, who's not even from Israel, but expresses great loyalty to him. A loyalty which we, uh, from a friend, which we should all desire in our life to have that kind of loyalty, right? To have that kind of a friend that we can depend on. And so as David is leaving and as he is going away in his brokenness, there is from God a little bit of blessing. If David does not have eyes of faithfulness, that is trusting God in both the highs and the lows, he might miss that. We might miss that. How even whenever we are going through times of brokenness and it feels as though we are experiencing loss after loss or setback after setback, if we do not have eyes of faithfulness, then we'll miss how even in the brokenness, God always has little beacons of blessing, little, little beacons of light to encourage our faith, to strengthen it so that we might continue on. He encourages his faith with Ittai, but then he also encourages it from another unlikely source. Towards the end of this chapter, he learns of Ahithophel. We heard of him uh, in, in the reading earlier, but Ahithophel was one of David's uh, best advisors. 
uh, he was a, 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 he was a genius. He was an incredible strategist. He was a man that David relied upon greatly and felt a a deep um, intimacy with. You know, he was one of his most trusted advisors, one of his most trusted friends, one of his right-hand men. But Ahithophel goes with Absalom. David learns about this towards the end of the chapter. He hears that Ahithophel has has betrayed him, and, and he says, Uh, Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. His heart is broken. But then in verse 32, it says, When David came to the summit where he used to worship God, Hushai the archite was there to meet him with his robe torn and dust on his head. So right after he has just heard of his son's disloyalty, God gives him, here's the loyalty of a friend. And after he hears about the uh, betrayal of an advisor, that he had trusted in Ahithophel from another unlikely source, this random, this man that he hadn't seen in a while that we haven't heard of, heard of until this point, worshiping on a mountain that he hasn't been to in years, just happens to be there. He hears about Ahithophel, and then here's Hushai, a man that he can trust in. And you know what he tells Hushai? Hushai says it, it, it plans to stay there to mourn with David, but he says to him instead, he says, no, actually, you're going to be my man on the inside. Because if you go back and read this chapter later, you're going to see how David, while trusting in God, that doesn't mean that he's not going to act. That's an important lesson for us. As we trust in God, and as we, uh, as we lay ultimate control of our lives, or whatever situation you are in, into his hands, it does not mean that you quit using whatever tools are at your disposal to do the work that he has called you to. And so, you know what David does? He sends some priests back into the city to set up an information highway so that whatever is going on in the city, through these connections, it was two or three men, so that through these two or three men, they would be able to report back to him what is happening inside the city. And then he meets Hushai, a wise man, an advisor who is loyal to him. And he says to him, Hushai, actually... You know, I lost Ahithophel, but now God has given me you. I don't need you here with me. I need you inside the city. And so he sends Hushai back into the city to intentionally sabotage the, uh, the advice and the counsel that Ahithophel was giving to Absalom and, and told him, you can use the information highway so we can communicate back and forth with the people that I already have put in place. Even in this low, God is encouraging David's faith by giving him a friend, Ittai, and by, give, and by giving him providence. Where David thought he, was, he had lost, God provides with his shy. And then finally, in the last piece that you'll see in this story of David's faithfulness, when they're leaving the city, there's some priests, <clears throat> the same ones that David would send back in who are bringing the ark, and they're saying, hold up, you're going too fast. They say, you're forgetting about the ark. And he turns around and he says to them, send it back into the city. Now, that's interesting, because that's the exact opposite of what we've seen all the other leaders do with the ark in troubled times before this. Because, remember, to them, the ark was the, the symbol, and it itself was the presence of God in Israel. 
they didn't, uh, that, that was the presence of God. And so what you saw previous leaders doing in Israel's history is that, especially Saul, he would use the ark kind of like a tool or like a good luck charm whenever he was going into battle thinking, you know, if the ark is with me, well, then surely we're going to win. The presence of God, uh, obedience to God, those things didn't really matter to him as much as let's just make the ark is there. It will be good. He saw it like a good luck charm. You know, he saw it like, like just, a, uh, just a token to use and to manipulate. But David instead is not going to repeat the mistakes of those leaders in the past and treat the ark of the Lord as just a good luck charm and think that if he has it with them, well, then all's going to go well and surely God is on his side. Instead, what he does is he fully resigns himself to the Lord and his care. He fully gives himself over to God and his care. The scholar Bill T. Arnold said this, David appears here as one who has finally learned not to grasp at every means available to manipulate, to maneuver, maneuver in order to control the final outcome. He certainly takes action to meet the challenge of Absalom's rebellion, but not by seizing the Ark of the Covenant and turning it to his advantage. He understands, I can leave my life in God's hands without having to manipulate, try, without trying to manipulate the circumstance. I don't need to treat the ark, which was this, the, the place of God's presence, what held the law as a good luck charm, because I can just give myself over to my gracious God. Faithfulness persistent trust in God in the highs and in the lows. Let me ask you, what arcs do you need to let go of? What arcs do you need to let go of? What I mean by that is this. I think that very often, as New Testament Christians, we don't have an ark because we know that because of the work of Jesus Christ and his intercession as a high priest, we can go into the very presence of God and uh, the special presence of God, relational presence of God, wherever we are, right? We don't need an ark because of Christ. Hallelujah. But we can start to build up other things in our life to treat like arks. What I mean by that is this, maybe it's a person, maybe it is a job, Maybe it's a, it's, it's a situation that we are in or an opportunity that we desire for ourselves, And we say to ourselves, you know, as long as God keeps this person in my life, or maybe if God gives me this kind of a person in my life, whether it be a future spouse, whether it be a, a, a type of friend that you're looking for, you say to yourself, you know, just maybe if God would give me this job opportunity, or maybe it's the job that you have now that you're holding on to. You look at all these different things and you say, as long as I have this, then I know that God is with me. I know that God has blessed me. I know that God has loved me. Our prayers often become filled with this attitude of, Lord, open this door for me. And we might not say it, but we think, and if I know, and if you would open it for me, then I'll know that you love me. I'll know that you're with me. I'll know that you approve of me and that you truly are holding my life in your hands. We build up all kinds of arcs in our life all the time. Like I said, whether it be people, whether it be opportunities, whether it be circumstances, or any other kind of thing in our life that we might attach our heart to and say, this is the evidence of God's presence and goodness in my life. 
And so as long as I have this, I'll, I'll be willing to trust myself to him. What kind of ark do you have in your life? What is that thing that you look to and it just, it fills you up with so much comfort and hope, but also terrifies you if you were to lose it? Because, you know, it would not just be the loss of something valuable, but it would be the loss of my faith in God. Rather than listening to God's word and trusting in what he says to us about his presence, what he says to us about his persistent goodness and his persistent faithfulness towards us, we place our faith, our faith in good luck charms and so on, and arcs in our own life. Finally, we see David leaving, leaving the city of God and weeping as he does. The king exits the city with tears coming down his face. In this moment and in this chapter, he is pointing us forward to the ultimate king, King Jesus, the son of David. Years later, there would be a son of David who would not be uh, who would not rebel against God, who would not rebel against Yahweh, but instead would be absolutely faithful to him and absolutely obedient to him, who would not be rebelling against God's anointed, but would be himself God's anointed. And yet he would be the king who is rejected by his own people as he carried his cross, leaving the city, weeping. We see in David a picture of Jesus who would come later down the road, another rejected king, rejected by his people, leaving the city. But for Jesus, his journey out of the city to the mountain would end in his death. It would end in his crucifixion on the cross, wherever he bore upon himself and in his own body the price for our rebellion against God. He was faithful. He was obedient. We have rebelled, and yet he took the death of a rebel, quite literally. The Roman cross was an execution reserved for rebels against Caesar. Jesus died the death of a rebel that we deserved so that we might experience that same persistent, ongoing, secure love and faithfulness from God towards us that we do not deserve. Jesus took that on himself so that our rebellion might be forgiven and that we might receive the gift of relationship and of uh, steadfast love from God that we might hold on to forever. And you know what? You think to yourself, it's hard to trust. It's hard to give over control of my life to another person, much less to the all-powerful God. You think to yourself, but my faith, I'm, I'm trying not to be so intermittent. I'm trying to trust as well as I do in the highs and in the lows. How am I supposed to do it? Whenever you see that king who is rejected and taking your penalty upon himself, who is faithful in life and in death to God, whenever you see what he has done for you, done in your place, and you recognize that you receive God's grace and his love because of what that king has done for you, well, then it gives you the faith, and it gives you the inspiration. It gives you a picture, an image to look at to fuel your faith in the now. So that both in the good times and in the bad, 
in the hard times when it was difficult to trust or to let go of that good luck charm, you can remember, I don't need that ark in my life because I have him. I can trust whenever the road gets foggy, whenever the seas get rough, whenever, whenever the ground beneath me shakes, because he remains steadfast as he carried my cross to that hill. And he remained steadfast as he hung on it and died from me. And he proved his work accomplished when he overcame the grave on my behalf. Whenever you see your rejected king uh, take on the consequence for your rebellion and overcome your death in Jesus, then that is what will fuel and strengthen your faithfulness through the highs and through the lows to let go of all else in life and say, all I have, all I need is Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we are rebels. How often we take the things that you have given us in life, whether it be our resources, the the power, influence that we have, our opportunities, and we use them as the tools to rebel against you. Father, we confess that we have not just broken laws, but that we have, in our sin, directed an all-out assault on you and your authority in your goodness towards us and in your, your providence. We trample on it in our sin, in our rebellion. Father, we confess this before you. And just as we turn away from you in our rebellion, Father, now we repent and we turn away from our sin to turn back towards you. Lord, help us to understand and receive the gospel message that you deliver to us how our king who was rejected by his own died for our sins so that we can be forgiven, set free from all all condemnation, guilt, and shame and might follow after you. Lord, having the image of you bearing our cross, remaining steadfast as the image and as the inspiration, as the consolation that we need for faithfulness in the now. So Father, as we turn back to you from our rebellion, Make us people who are faithful, who do not trust only whenever times are good or pray only whenever we feel our need, but that we are faithful, persistent in all times. That in our faithfulness, we obey you, that we rejoice in submitting our lives to you, and that we also become blessings to the people around us and people who responsibly fulfill all the obligations that you have given us so that those relationships, those communities, and those obligations which would be destroyed by sin instead are restored, renewed, watered, nurtured, and flourished as your grace works through our lives. We pray these things in your name. Amen.